and the Waray consumed their their dead. But the Waray were just as freaked out by the fact that, you know, and of course, I'm paraphrasing, you know, they asked them what, you know, what you did with, what did you guys do with your dead? And the response was, well, well we buried them. And, you know, the Waray were, you know, were, uh, you know, sort of boinged out about that. You know, what do you mean you bury your dead? Why, why would you put them in the ground to be eaten with worms? Why wouldn't you incorporate them into your, into yourself? So this is that whole idea that culture is king. This is Meredith For Real, The Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think but don't ask out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. You might be asking yourself, why in God's name are we listening to another episode on cannibalism? Well, it was in God's name that a lot of cannibalism was eradicated, or so I thought. It turns out the history of cannibalism is a little fuzzy and complicated and really interesting. I first got thinking about this one day when I was watering my plants. If you're a fellow ADDer, you might relate to ideas coming to you during physical activities that are completely unrelated to the thought. So I knew that I wanted to cover this topic here, but I couldn't find anyone that wasn't a completely boring highbrow academic or a true crimer obsessed over gory details. Thankfully, I found this week's guest who is a cannibalism Goldilocks of a fit. If you're wondering where I find guests like these, honestly, the source is different for each guest. But I get asked that question a lot, so I started putting the source of each guest in my Monday email along with the regular info about the episode. If you're not getting the episode emails and you want to be included, you can text REAL to 66866 if you're in the U.S., or go to MeredithForReal.com if you're elsewhere. On Saturday, I also send out a Cliff Notes and clickable links email in case what you heard was so good that you wished you could have taken notes, or you know you want to check out a resource that the guests mentioned. If you're already getting my emails, you're probably one of my amazing loyal listeners, so thank you for that. You're helping make the world a more curious place, and that honestly matters a lot. Curiosity is the foundation of honest communication, problem solving, and exploration. And look at you, doing all that with your phone and earbuds. And if you're new here, welcome. Around here, we press play to get curious, to disrupt the algorithm, and to grow into better humans. I talk with everyone from scientists to sex workers. There's no specific order to listen to episodes. And at the end of each episode, I offer a next episode suggestion of if you liked that, you might like this. So have a look around and hit play on whatever grabs your attention. All right, enjoy the show. What do you think of when you think of human cannibalism? Sensational media headlines come to mind. Remote communities of people in a far off jungle, maybe. But what about Europeans in the Middle Ages drinking mummy dust? Or present day moms? eating their placenta. My next guest is a PhD zoologist, emeritus professor of biology at Long Island University, and a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History. He's also the author of Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History, 
which explores cannibalism practices in human and non-human nature. Today, he's going to discuss the history of human cannibalism, what makes it taboo, and its lesser discussed psychosocial aspects, passion for the natural world, curiosity for the human one, author, zoologist, and proud Italian Dr. Bill Shutt. Thanks for making time today. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, It's really nice to be here. Italian-American, that is. Italian-American. Yes, I loved all those references in your book that referred to that. That really made me feel connected to you. And I finished the book over the weekend. I have to say it has like my kind of entertainment, Uh, history, um, you know, uh, zoology and enough snarkiness to really make it like my brand of education. (laughs) (laughs) And all of my Aunt Roses are there as well. (laughs) Fabulous. I feel so close to Aunt Rose now. (laughs) I I also recognize the immense amount of research that went into every aspect of it. So I'd love to kick things off by asking you what surprised you the most about everything that you researched in preparation for writing the book. I guess I could break that down into 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 really two things, and one of them is uh, is human related, and the other is uh, has to do with with the animal kingdom. As far as the animal kingdom goes, up until relatively recently, when when, when people thought about cannibalism in the animal kingdom, they thought about praying mantises or, or or maybe black widow spiders, and and it was only over the last twenty twenty five years or so that scientists began began to. To, to realize that that cannibalism was a whole lot more frequent across the entire animal kingdom for reasons that had nothing to do with, uh, with, with, with the reasons that they thought animals cannibalized each other, except for these weirdos, the, uh, the mantises and, and, and the black widows, uh, you know, cannibalism in the animal kingdom was sort of blamed on cramped conditions or, uh, or, or starvation and captivity. But, but they began to realize that, that, that things like parental care and, and a, a lifeboat strategy where you, you know, the two, two eggs hatch uh, of, a, of a bird hatch before the, the third egg. And when the third egg hatches, it's a little guy. And if there's no food, they, you know, they'll either boot him out of the, uh, out of the nest or, or, or eat him. Um, and as a hedge against environmental conditions that might be changing, they were these incredibly cool spade foot toads that I got to study in, in, in Arizona. It's also a reproductive strategy for many animals, you know, um, and, and so that was a big surprise. As far as humans go, you know, once I had learned all about the, the fact that cannibalism was this, you know, arguably the, the greatest taboo that, 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 that humans could, uh, could come up with, the fact that cannibalism, medicinal cannibalism was so widespread across Europe for hundreds of years, um, right up until the beginning of the 20th century, you know, that blew me away, given, given the taboo aspect, given the knee jerk reaction that we have, you know, when you say the word cannibalism, I did not expect, especially in the West, where this taboo sort of originated, I didn't really expect that, that to happen. That surprised me a lot too. And it surprised me that the level of, the level of exaggeration that happened with colonizers labeling people. I think you, you in your book, you said, quote, candidates for extermination or slavery, uh, and especially in regard to Christopher Columbus and the Dominican Republic. I, I'm, I was vaguely aware that they use that as an excuse to kill people and, you know, just wipe out whole groups of, 
of individuals. Can you talk more about that? Because I think that's something that the listeners would also be surprised to hear about, specifically Columbus and the DR. Yeah, there's, I, I really talk a lot about it because it got to, to me, it was so interesting once I sort of fell into this topic uh, that, that uh, Columbus, for example, on his first voyage to the New World in, in, in 19, and, excuse me, in, in 1492, the people that he met, he, he, pretty much characterized them as gentle and nice and ready to become good Christians. And, um, and he was really looking for gold. And, and when he didn't find gold in, in, in his later visits to these islands, um, things changed. And, and, and without gold, you had to look for something else to finance uh, the, these trips. Uh, and, and human beings became, uh, you know, became the, the resource. So these groups that were initially designated as being, you know, nice and gentle and friendly, uh, all of a sudden they were they were being labeled as cannibals. Now, in 1503, Queen Isabella had sort of decreed that if uh, if the indigenous people that that Columbus met were were not cannibals, then they needed to be treated well. And 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 if they were cannibals, then then you could really do anything you wanted to them. So uh, what a coincidence! Uh, once gold uh, didn't turn up, um, you, you know, it became, uh, you know, the new thing was that everybody became a cannibal, and and so that meant that these were not humans, and you could kill them and rape them and and and, and steal from them and and take over their lands and and, and enslave them. Uh, and this became the sort of modus operandi of uh, of a lot of uh, of uh, flag planters uh, that that came to the the quote new world unquote. Yeah, those good old flag planters. <laughs> it it just I imagine. I mean, this is my imagination only, right? Because I'm not a researcher or a zoologist, or I'm I'm just me. But I imagine that these cannibalism tales would also give these uh, adventurers a certain amount of status as great, you know, great storytellers and, and people who were brave in the face of savages. And, and then when you, when you have that thought, which, you know, is conjectured, albeit, uh, but you compare it to our current indoctrination over decades of envisioning brown people in a far off place as savage and, you know, in the stone age, it kind of brings up the question internally, at least like, Okay, well, how do we undo all those years of indoctrination when, you know, it doesn't even seem that we'll have access to a complete history because it was written by the flag planters? Sure. Uh, You know, I I don't know if there's an answer to a full answer to to that question. But just the other day, I, when I went to the Museum of Natural History, I went to my wife and we walked around a couple of places that, that we hadn't been to that recently. Um, and, and what they had done, and this is over the last year is that they had taken some of the initial, the, the, the older displays. So for the one that pops into my mind is, um, are the, um, sort of pilgrims meeting, uh, um, indigenous, uh, men and, and they were coming into the, this village and they were handing over wampum. Now, now this had recently been 
um, revised with, uh, with with signs that that indicated that you know nowadays we don't really think that this was valid. We don't think that these guys would have been as undressed as they are. Um, we there there's a there, there's a lack of, of of women in this scene, and and so so we're trying, and a lot of people are trying uh, to sort of remedy the the you know the, the the problems that that were you know were so systemic for so long, and we, we've got a long way to go. Um, but the removal, for example, of the of, of the Roosevelt statue out in front of the Museum of Natural History, that's a case in point. And uh, that one depicted Roosevelt sitting up on a horse and, and beside him is a, an indigenous American and, and an African. Um, and so they are clearly subservient. Now, this statue was up there for 90 years and 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 people didn't really there wasn't that much of a big deal made over it. But over the last couple of years, there were demonstrations and red paint was thrown on this statue and, and eventually it was removed. So I, so I think that there is an effort out there to sort of bring the, the, the truth to the, to the forefront. And, and that's really one of the things that I wanted to do when I wrote that section about, about how cannibalism, the, the, the term cannibalism, which we have this knee-jerk reaction to, was used as a bludgeon. Um, to, to dehumanize and, and, and as a, a, a way to, um, to sort of give green light to all sorts of horrible behavior. And it, that horrible behavior was not uh, pointed back at the, at the Europeans. <laughs> That's what Absolutely. was so funny. Because you, because you weren't dealing with humans. You were dealing with, with, with cannibals who were, who were monsters. You know, just another, another set of monsters that the explorers uh, met up with. And, you know, there were all sorts of descriptions of creatures and weird animals. Uh, and, you know, so, so when the early anthropologists started to get to places uh, like, for example, for example, South America and, and Africa, they expected to find cannibals. And so there was a lot more cannibalism um, reported in this early, you know, in the early uh, uh, anthropological writings than we believe actually occurred because they went in there with a mindset that that these groups were going to be cannibalistic, whether they were or not. You know, some probably were for for reasons you know, for, for reasons that varied. You know, um, you know, culture is king, and if if you didn't get the get the memo that uh, that that you're supposed to bury your dead, then you might <laughs> you you might come up with a with a belief system based on the fact that you consume your loved ones uh, after they pass away or warriors that, that you might slay in a battle. Yeah. I, I wasn't surprised about the eating the, the flesh of your defeated enemies, which is kind of telling of my personality. So <laughs> warning to anybody who might cross me, I suppose, but the funerary rites was surprising. Was that a common way for people to find closure of their deceased loved ones? Yeah, I, I don't know if it was common, but it, you know, but once it was discovered, then then it becomes sensationalized and 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 popular. And um, you know, I, I use a couple of examples when when anthropologists went into into central Brazil, they they found this indigenous group called the Waré, and 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 the Waré consumed their their dead. But the Waray were just as freaked out by the fact that, you know, and of course, I'm paraphrasing, you know, they asked them what, you know, what you did with, what did you guys do with your dead? And the response was, well, well we buried them. And, you know, the Waray were, you know, were, 
you know, sort of boinged out about that. You know, what do you mean you bury your dead? Why, why would you put them in the ground to be eaten with worms? Why wouldn't you incorporate them into your into yourself? So this is that whole idea that culture is king, and it's you know we as humans determine what is acceptable and and what is not acceptable. And a lot of times that has to do with food. You know, back in the old days, you know, uh, groups were were sort of characterized or pointed at and made fun of because of what they ate. You know, Chinese are certainly a, a group that comes to mind, and and the French went. You know, they used to be called frogs because they ate frogs' legs, and that was people thought that was weird. Um, so when you put together the greatest taboo with and add food to that, then you've got this fascination that you see with uh, um, with the subject of cannibalism. Well, I mean, let's talk about uh, what is it called? Transubstantiation. The so <laughs> do, so. In your opinion, does the Catholic belief that bread and wine actually turn into the body and blood of Christ when consumed in communion? exist under the umbrella of cannibalism and we don't think of it as such simply because culture is king yeah i, I in, you know i think now i've got a lot of catholic relatives and, and all of them is sort of like yeah uh, we're eating the actual body of, of christ nod nod wink wink right, uh, right. and <laughs> i got in trouble for that line from somebody from the vatican contacted me and they were like you know this is you know you're, you're, you're misinterpreting this and I, I i didn't quite understand how it was you know, but in the old days, uh, the, the Catholic belief was that this that, that that the bread actually turned into the flesh of of Christ, and the wine turned into His blood, and and it was not nod nod wink wink, and and you could get in into real trouble if you were accused of things like stealing the host or or doing something nefarious with the with it. You know, this was a way to to persecute uh, groups like Jews and 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 others. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, so, so I, I guess I looked at that because I, it, it's one of the examples where, where cannibalism is really, there's a, there, there are certainly gray areas. It's not black and white. If you, if you, if you, if you chew your fingernails and swallow them, is that, is that cannibalism? Or if you're swapping spit with, with, with somebody, is, is that cannibalism? <laughs> so, so, um, so, so this was sort of a, uh, <laughs> this was a, a uh, an example that I thought was a bit more controversial. So I wanted to cover it. Uh, and and it, it, it was kind of fun. Well, I, I enjoy not only co the controversy, of course, but I enjoy the, um, I don't know what the word is when I really like when you have concepts that in our mind exist in a certain framework. And then, it will, you know, like as an experiment, a thought experiment, you flip it on its head and then, it, and then you ask the same question yeah. and get a different answer. So on that, I would love to uh, have you share more about what you mentioned at the very beginning, Europeans. And, and as I, I mentioned in the intro, people eating, you know, mummy smoothies. I, was, I know they weren't really smoothies, but um, I just found it so interesting. Can you talk about that? Because that's another example of uh, cannibalism that doesn't seem to make the history books. And yet the, the, the cultures of indigenous people in far off lands do. Yeah, it pretty much got erased from from the record. Um, it was very, very commonplace throughout the Middle Ages and, and right up into this is in Europe, mostly in Europe, um, right up into the early 20th century when the Merck Index listed this material called mumia and mumia was ground up mummy. And, and this is just one example of the fact that not only did we eat we're, we're just about every part of the human body consumed to cure fill in the blank 
uh, but extremes like uh, there was a the, the, we believe this came from a mistranslation of an Arabic word, which uh, for for this for for tar or, or or bitumen, which we think the ancient Egyptians used to bind wounds um, and 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 things like that uh, for some medicinal purposes. But eventually, when it got translated, the the the, the it was the same word as 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 the the Arabic word for for mummy, um, and when the Europeans came, when the Europeans um, ran into that, they mistook mummies, the dried up dead guys, uh, for what was being talked about as medicinal, and so this uh, you know in a sense a cottage industry began with. Um, with sending mummies over from from Egypt that were that were ground up into uh, a powder that was taken in and you know, you'd make it into an elixir to do things like treat upset stomachs or or, or epilepsy, uh, and then when they ran out of mummies, they they started to produce their own mummies. You know, they exhumed dead bodies and prep them and then dry them out. And um, as I said, this continued right into the twentieth century. Uh, if you, the Merck Index is this pharmacological uh, catalog in a sense of, uh, uh, and, and Mumia was right there uh, up until about 1905 or so. That's crazy. Uh, when you think yeah. And then it. all of this disappeared. All of the record of this disappeared until uh, some authors and researchers started to dig this stuff out and write about it over the last 20, 30 years. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If trash TV leaves you feeling drained and you want to support creators like yours truly, check out StreamMoco. You can search shows by your mood and even, you know, watch my show, The Curious Introvert. For every $3.99 subscription, they give away a dollar for good and support their creators like your girl. Find my affiliate link in the episode description or the bio link in my Instagram account. StreamMoco, the streaming network that gives a damn. If you've got backyard barbecue plans for 2022, but mosquitoes are not invited, I recommend Insect. I've been using their pest control service for several years now. They have a certified mosquito identification specialist on staff, and pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. The UWF Historic Trust. We shoot the show at the Pensacola Museum of History. It not only houses exhibits of lesser-known Pensacola history, it's an event space too. So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola for a fundraiser, networking event, or a corporate party, take a look at historicpensacola.org. And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. Now back to the show. It's so interesting. Um, in, the, in the line of medicinal cannibalism is uh, eating one's own placenta. You had, I really enjoyed that you brought this aspect into your book because as I was researching, uh, exploring really my own curiosity months ago in this area, I remembered that um, sometimes mothers do this for medicinal purposes to curb, you know, postpartum depression or energy loss. Can you talk about um, your own experience with the woman in Texas? And yeah, uh, that, I found that really interesting. 
Yeah, this is sort of the last vestige in, that, that I can see, or pretty much the last vestige of, of medicinal cannibalism. And, um, and it's not done by many people. You know, I thought it was more widespread, and it, it, it certainly wasn't. But it is a form of alternative medicine. And the thought here is that when the, when, when the placenta is, um, it, it is delivered during childbirth, and, and all of a sudden it becomes, it goes from this miracle organ to afterbirth, and almost instantaneously, usually it's gotten, it's, it's disposed of. But some people came up with, and we think this is probably in the in the 1960s, uh, that um, that that thought was that without the placenta, which produces a number of uh, of hormones, um, that there would be that this would the lack of a placenta and the hormones that it produced would produce the things like mood swings, the baby blues, and and so so the thought became well, if you consume the placenta, then you can replenish those. Uh, th those hormones. And so um, doulas and, and other people started to specialize in, uh, in dealing with a clientele who was interested in having their own placentas prepared in a number of ways. You know, you know, so, so, so what I was just about done with this, with this book and I had written that chapter already and, and, uh, a placenta specialist <laughs> who uh, was a researcher, yeah, probably the only one uh, up at Buffalo, gave me the name of a, of, a, of a woman who did this for a living in Texas. And, and, and so I called her up and, and my, I taught for 24 years and, and my classes were starting. I know it was, it was like September. And, uh, and so I thought, okay, well, let me interview her over the phone and see if we can get some neat stuff to, to just put in here at the end. And, um, and, as we talked, I, it, she she was really interesting and really intelligent and and, and funny and nice and, and 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 she, I thought the conversation was sort of ending and she said, well, you know, it's too bad you can't come down here because you can eat my placenta and I just went, what did I just hear this woman tell me that I could <laughs> fly down to Texas and eat her placenta and she said, yeah, I I just gave birth and uh, my placenta's in the freezer and my my husband is a chef. He can prepare it any way you want. He can make it into a taco. He can prepare it asabuco, uh, you know, whatever you want to do. And I just, you know, I sat there and I thought to myself, I'm writing this book about cannibalism and it's like 10 years down the road. And if I had the opportunity to, to consume part of this woman's placenta and I didn't do it, I figured I'd be kicking myself in the behind. So as my wife describes it, within 10 minutes, I had tickets to go fly down to, to Plano, Texas, met her. Um, and and if you read it in the book, it's, you know, I also write fiction. And, and, and if I made this up as a fiction writer, <laughs> it couldn't have gotten any weirder or more interesting or, 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 or more lovely. The, the people down there were, uh, you know, I fell in love with them. Um, her and her, her husband and her 10 homeschooled children, you know, um, who were asked, you know, I, after I got, they were swarming all over me and they were, you know, can I touch your iPhone and like, are you eating mommy's placenta? And I was like starting to freak out from all these kids hanging all over me. Um, it sort of reminded me of the scene in, in Raising Arizona where Nicolas Cage has these little kids climbing all over him and he's like just ready to freak out. It was, it was very much like that. But uh, long story short, the, uh, they prepared it. He, he had put on his chef's outfit, uh, sauteed up some vegetables. I had gone to a liquor store and uh, and you know I, I 
I tried to find the most Texas looking person I could find. And I said, you know, I've got a kind of an interesting pairing for tonight's dinner. And, uh, and, and then the woman wound up running away from me when I explained to her what we were doing. Um, so, so I find a nice bottle of red and, and he actually used that in, uh, in, in preparing in, in sort of, uh, uh preparing the, these vegetables and, and, you know, I, I get the question, what did it taste like? Yeah, it's going to taste like, it depends, you know, if this is an organ meat, it's going to taste like, a, and to me, it's, it was a little bit like the consistency of liver. The taste was sort of like, reminded me of, uh, you know, back when you were, when I was in college, I used to eat chicken livers and fry them up. And, and it sort of reminded me of that. Um, but it was to me, no big deal. I didn't need a lot of it. Would I do it again? No. I, I think that I don't condone it. I think that, that diseases can be transmitted by, by the consumption of, uh, of placentas, um, especially if they're mishandled. So, I mean, I did it because I was writing a book about cannibalism. It, it was not something that I think works. She even admitted it herself. I mean, uh, I, I really got the feeling that she believed that it was the placebo effect where, because if you, if you think of a hormone as a, uh, as, as a, as a protein, if you cook it, you are denaturing that protein. Uh, like when you cook an egg, you, de you know, that albumin goes from liquid to solid. It doesn't have the same properties anymore, but the same token, these hormones are being denatured as you cook them. So, so I do think that it, that it was a lot of the placebo effect, but it was a remarkable, a remarkable trip. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I did it. And I sort of topped the book off with, uh, with this chapter placenta helper. <laughs> and it, it really did uh, put a nice bookend on all of the uh, information that your book offered. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I also respect the, um, I don't know, the yes factor of it, you know, like, the overcoming your own you to, to, and replacing that with, huh? I think there's, I think there's some power in that. Do you think that the, the ick and anger factor in us is innate or do you think it's more culturally developed? I think it's culturally developed. And I, you know, I, I searched for, you know, is, is, is this knee jerk reaction to cannibalism? It's something that, that, that is like biologically ingrained in us. And, and I really came to the conclusion that it's not, uh, that it is, that it is culture related. And there are cultures that, you know, um, where you wouldn't think twice about, uh, about some things that other cultures would just think is, you know, the most disgusting thing that you can do, but that's really part of, you know, that, that's part of the niche that I was lucky enough to fit into with my books. You know, I wrote a book. My, my first book was about uh, was about blood feeding creatures, blood and blood feeding creatures, dark banquet. And and and, and the second one was cannibalism. And the third one was was a little bit different. It was it, it's the one that's out now is pump a natural history of the heart. But I love to, to to go in and and look at topics related to those big you know, sort of the title topics Um and and give them a slant that demystifies them and and you know topics that people generally would freak out over and 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 put a zoological slant on them uh, and then look at the history behind why we think this way um, and and so that's you know I was really lucky because I've been able to over the course of what's now going on four books writing a book about about the natural history of teeth that 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 uh, thread winds through everything that I do. And, and I find it really interesting to take that approach, take something that people, you know, freak out over and, and just put it in a different light. 
so that so that there's a you know a different understanding when you get done with the book, and to do it in an entertaining and 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 humorous way. It's you know it's it's sometimes difficult to to write humor when you're writing about cannibals, and so you got to sort of pick your spots. Um, but but it's it, it's doable, and I and, and I think that it, I've had a lot of fun taking that uh, uh, taking that approach. Plus the fact that I'm not an expert in any of these things. You know, I studied bats for a living for 30 years, and here I am looking at uh, at, at 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 women who prepare placentas for their clients. Um, so, so it's always it's really stimulating, and 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 I, I I'm incredibly lucky to be able to write that sort of thing. It's stimulating and it's important. I feel like uh, my listeners right now are probably smiling ear to ear as they heard you describe the thread of curiosity that goes throughout your research in your books, because they know that that's the thread that goes throughout my podcast episodes, because the idea for this is to lead with curiosity instead of judgment, ask questions, even if you're not sure they can ever be answered. And just to, um, yeah, I, I call it disrupting the algorithm because the algorithm, you know, fits into a headline and we're fed it in in a regurgitated fashion, right? It's like the same headline reworked and rearranged. And, and so by uh, having a more active version of curiosity, it allows us to explore these topics, which are incredibly entertaining and equally enlightening. And so I'm so glad that you came today and that we had this conversation. I'm really grateful. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Take can, care. Absolutely. Before we sign off though, can you tell people okay. where they can get your books? Um, pretty much anywhere that books are sold. I, I have, uh, you know, so Amazon to, to any bookstore, you could order it if it's not there. Um, my, my newest book, Pump, A Natural History of the Heart is coming out in paperback in, on September 13th. Um, I've got three novels that I, that I co-wrote, uh, the sort of like cryptozoology thrillers that take place in and around World War II. Uh, about this adventurer who works at a, a natural history museum and some of the kinds of strange things he encounters. Uh, but I have a, uh, I've got a Goodreads page and, uh, and an Amazon author's page. And, and my website is billshut.com, B-I-L-L-S-C-H-U-T-T. I'm pretty easy to reach. And if, if readers have questions, I'm always, I'm always really, really happy to, to get back to them about, about things. Perfect. Thank you again. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you've loved a couple episodes of the show, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the Good Pods app. If you liked this episode, you might also be into travel and culture. So you might like the one I did with the man who didn't know that he was indigenous royalty until he was in his 50s. It's episode 114. Stay tuned next week when I talk with an author on how to have authentic relationships in the digital age of loneliness.